If we please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11 this morning. It's found on page 962 uh, in the Pew Bible. And we are in the, the part of the letter that most people just breeze through. You know, we've gone through, through all the, the good stuff already. The well-known passages. We went through chapter 11, the, the love chapter. We went through the difficult-to-understand passages. We talked about head coverings and women being silent in churches. We went through the difficult-to-accept passages. God's wisdom is foolishness to the world, and the world's wisdom is foolishness to God. We went through the practical passages about marriage and about lawsuits and about Christian liberty and about not causing others to stumble. And then we spent eight weeks looking at the pinnacle of this letter, chapter 15, about the resurrection, about our eternal state, about the death of death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So should we be finished? Aren't, aren't we ready to move on to another book? Well, even in these final instructions and greetings, even in these somewhat monotonous and mundane verses, there are still nuggets of God's wisdom. There are still truths that will will edify us and give us practical instructions for the church today. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 through 11. You're now the word of the Lord. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your spirit. I need your spirit. Father, I pray that you will anoint my words, that they will be your words, that I will speak only your truth, speak your truth with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to open all of our hearts and minds so that we will hear the message that you have for us in this word, that we will see Christ. And I pray, Father, that these words will not just be intellectual exercises, but they will change us. Change each one of us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, at our last presbytery meeting that Nathan and I went to earlier this month, there was a report from the the shepherding committee. And the shepherding committee are those elders that are charged with shepherding the shepherds. They're responsible to provide pastoral care for the pastors in our presbytery. And in this report, the chairman of the committee gave some really sobering statistics. He said about one in ten men who go to seminary enter the ministry, only one in ten actually retire from the ministry. Ninety percent at some time during their career go and do something else. They leave the ministry. And he gave numbers. I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were large numbers. And he said there of a number of pastors that completely leave the ministry every single month. And he said that the majority of pastors and and people in Christian service feel exhausted, feel discouraged, feel overwhelmed, feel like they're completely ineffective. And I think this is not just the case for pastors. I think this is the case for all who are in some type of vocational ministry, whether they're missionaries, whether they are teachers, whether teachers in private schools, home schools, public schools whether they are Christian social workers, whether they work for nonprofits like the, like the Anchorage or, or the Salvation Army or adoption agencies or pregnancy centers or Christian camps. And just, just this last Tuesday of this week, Lynn and I went to visit the Salvation Army, and we met with the, the new couple that is leading this Albany Post. They, they were transferred here from, from Valdosta. 
And I was completely overwhelmed during this tour as he was going through all the stuff that they do, all the things that they do with just a, a small staff. I think they have about a total of eight people on their staff. And this couple, they prepare 75 meals a day. They prepare them, they cook them, they serve them, they clean up every day. <clears throat> they're responsible not only for that, but the administrative duties. They're responsible for the fundraising. They're responsible for the maintenance. As we're going through, they're saying, we need to get this taken care of. We're, we're seeing all the maintenance needs of the building. And then also, this is something I didn't know, but the Salvation Army is actually a church. So in addition to all the stuff that they're doing, they're also pastors. They're worship leaders for this church. And then, that's, that's their normal work. Then, if there's a natural disaster, like this hurricane we're talking about, this hurricane hits, all that stops, and they get into trucks, and they go to wherever this hurricane is, and they help. They can spend 14 days there feeding people and providing relief for the people in the affected areas. But their main function here in Albany is to feed and provide this overnight shelter uh, for the homeless population. But the saddest fact, I remember we were sitting, we were talking to him, and he said the saddest fact is that very few of the people they serve actually are able to get out of the situation that they're brought in. They're just going to perpetually be homeless, perpetually in the situation. That seems discouraging. And in light of that, my ministry here at Northgate seems so easy in comparison. <clears throat> but I think the biggest difficulty of any Christian ministry, it's not the long hours, it's not the hard work and uh, low pay, or even the feeling of the futility uh, in the work, feeling that you just don't make a difference. And I, th I think this biggest obstacle, something that, that Renee alluded to in, in, in the prayer request, I think the biggest obstacle is the spiritual opposition we face. And, and, and opposition is it, we see in all Christian ministry. See, we need to forget that th this battle is spiritual primarily. It's not physical. We have an enemy. We have a malevolent uh, adversary that hates God, that hates us. And there are demonic forces Demonic forces that, that uh, oppose us, and, and their primary motive is, is, of attack is not physical, but it's discouragement. It's frustration, and it's exploiting our own sinful desires. <clears throat> and really, this is true for all Christians. This is true for every single Christian. But for those who are in vocational ministry, teachers, elders, deacons, pastors, missionaries, these are the high-value targets of the enemy. Right? Is, is any, any physical war, the front lines, this is where it's the, the most dangerous. And those in vocational ministry are on the front lines. And taking them out will have this greater impact, will cause greater damage for the cause of Christ. And the congregation, those of us here in the pews, we can unwittingly be used by Satan to inflict harm on these various ministries and ministers, or we can assist or we can protect, or we can defend and strengthen those on the front lines. And in these two verses, Paul gives instructions to the Corinthians how they can be a blessing and not a curse to Timothy. This is Paul's fellow laborer. This is God's servant, how they can be a, a blessing and not a curse. And before we look at the, the general principles that, that can be applied really to, to all ministries and all ministers, let's look at the specific situation. Look at Timothy himself. So we know quite a bit about Timothy. We know that we're told in, in Acts chapter 16 that Paul met Timothy and, and Lystra. And Paul and Timothy was already a Christian. He was already a disciple of Christ at this time. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that he has no one like Timothy. He says, Timothy is genuinely concerned with the welfare of the churches and, and the welfare of believers. See, Timothy does not seek his own interests. He seeks the interests of Christ. Christ is the most important 
to Timothy. And Timothy has over and over proven his worth as a servant of God. And Paul considers Timothy to be like a son to him, a spiritual son. And it's suspected that Timothy's mother Eunice and and grandmother Lois, they were converted during one of Paul's first missionary journeys to, to Lystra. And then they instructed this young boy, Timothy, from childhood in the scripture. And as he grew, the elders of the church recognized the anointing on Timothy. And they laid their hands upon him. And Timothy was set apart. He was equipped for ministry. And then Timothy traveled with Paul throughout most of his second and third ministry journeys. We see Timothy in Acts 17, Acts 18, Acts 19, Acts 20. And looking at Timothy, if we were to look at his resume, we would mistakenly think that Timothy was some type of spiritual superman, this fearless, mighty servant of God, always putting Christ first. But this is not the case at all. See, Paul seems to characterize Timothy as, as having a spirit of fear. See this in 2 Timothy 1.7. In the two pastoral epistles written to Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy not to let anyone despise him on account of his youth. He was probably about 30 compared to Paul, who was probably in his mid to late 50s at the time. And Paul also tells him not to neglect the spiritual gift that he received. And Paul encourages him not to be ashamed of the gospel, but rather to speak boldly and declare the gospel boldly. And I suspect in, in, in 1 Timothy 5.23, where Paul instructs Timothy not to drink only water, but to have a little wine on account of his stomach. I wonder if Timothy had maybe ulcers or, or other stomach ailments resulting from this fear and anxiety. And all this points to Timothy being a rather timid, although faithful young man, a young man who is fiercely loyal to Paul and loyal to God. And I think Timothy is similar to many, not all, but many men and women who are drawn to Christian service, whether a pastor or a teacher or a missionary or, or a social worker or in some type of Christian agency. See, there's a gentleness and a tenderness of many who want to serve the Lord, many who want to serve his people. And as with Timothy, there is a, a genuine concern, there's a genuine love for God's people, often expressed through self-sacrificing service. However, this natural disposition can cause great emotional distress when experiencing the personal and spiritual opposition that is common in day-to-day pressures of ministry. And this often leads to burnout, frustration, the short tenure in ministry that we just discussed. And all of this is detrimental to the proclamation of the gospel. It's all detrimental to the furthering of God's kingdom, all detrimental to bringing God glory. And I think this is why Paul gives these specific instructions to the Corinthian congregation. See, Timothy in particular, and these types of tender-hearted ministers in general, they need specific care from the congregation to maximize their effectiveness for the kingdom of God. So let's look at these instructions that Paul gives to the congregation, starting in verse 10. It says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. The words translated here, put him at ease, literally means see that he is without fear, without fear. And this fits our understanding of that Timothy was a fearful young man. He was timid. He was, he was anxious. And Paul's instructions to the church is that they are not to be the cause of Timothy's fear. They are to be disarming. They are to provide a safe environment. They are to put him at ease. <clears throat> so just, just put yourself in, in Timothy's shoes. You're a young minister. You're coming to a a relatively immature church, as as we had seen through our study of 1 Corinthians. It's a church with factions. It's a a church with 
with immorality, a church that has lawsuits among their members, a church where they, they major on the minor things. They fail to show love for one another. They're putting stumbling blocks in the path of each other. And in addition to the church, Corinth itself is a rough city. Remember, it's a port city. It actually had two ports, one sea on each side. And there was, there was immorality in the city. There was violence in the city. This would be a pretty intimidating environment to enter. And Paul's instructions here are, are to the church, don't make it worse. Don't make it worse for Timothy. Now, in any organization, there is political maneuvering. There is jockeying, jockeying for control and influences. And churches and Christian organizations are no different. In Christian organizations, there are certain stakeholders, and they could be parents, they could be families, they could be teachers, administrators, board members, whatever. They have an outsized influence on the organization. And these people have power, and they use this power to intimidate and silence different opinions or agendas that are different from their own. And my friends, the same is true in churches. There are influential members, either people from influential families or or big donors, and it's known, it's known that you don't cross certain people. And if you cross them, there are consequences. In the mid-20th century, the, the Scottish minister, Peter Marshall, was the pastor of New York Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And among his congregation were high-ranking members of the government and, and military and, and, and elected leaders. There were senators and congressmen and, and people in the administration who were in his church. And talk about intimidation. I mean, today, there are several United States senators who are members of PCA churches. And I've often mentioned to, to many of you that the, the Roman Catholic priest who actually baptized me as an infant had also performed the wedding of the son of a well-known mafia boss in New York City. If I mentioned his name, you, you would recognize the name. And I don't know if this mob boss was, was part of the congregation, but could you imagine attempting to discipline a mob boss in your church? Even as a priest, you might end up sleeping with the fishes. I mean, this is, this is not good. I, I can understand why so many pastors uh, preach these, these bland sermons. I mean, think about it. You listen to a lot. They're bland. They don't really say anything. And the reason is they're afraid. They're afraid that they may offend the wrong person. They may offend the wrong person. They may be out of a job or they may be sleeping with the fishes. I remember hearing a story, and, and I don't know, I, I read it a while ago, I don't know all the details, I may not get them all right, but it was really a disturbing story. It took place, I think, in the early 1960s in the Deep South. It was a, a white Presbyterian church, and they had a young pastor there who was trying to integrate the church, trying to reach out uh, to the African Americans around him. And at one point, the the elders asked the, the young pastor to meet him in his office. And they came in there, the elders were there, and the deacons were there too. And the, one of the elders said, this is a message we have for what you're doing. And then the deacons came forward, and they literally beat this man nearly to death. Just came and beat this pastor, left him on the floor. His wife had to come, he didn't come home, and discovered him lying on the floor. That's intimidation. I mean... And, and the amazing thing is, I mean, I would have been out of it. I would have been in. I would have been gone. I would have wiped the dust off my feet. He forgave all of those men, and they all repented. They repented of what they did. I, I mean, that's just amazing. Now, there will always be unbelievers. There will always be wolves in positions of power in churches, and they will use this position to attempt to intimidate, 
the man of God into either silence or into heresy. And there will always be the immature and weak Christians who, because their thinking is more worldly than Christian, they may also attempt to intimidate the man of God. But the true and mature believers, true and mature believers must put God's servants at ease. They must minister to them. They must encourage their ministers to fear only God, not man. Just this morning, I was reading something from Oswald Chambers. It says, fear God. It says, if you fear God, you won't fear anything else. If you don't fear God, you will fear everything else. And that's what we want of our, of our leaders. That's what we want of the servants of God, to fear God and nothing else. So what is the reason that Paul gives that they're to put him at ease? Look at the last part of verse 10. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. He's doing the work of the Lord. Just as Paul was doing the work of the Lord. The servant of God is called by God to do God's work. And attempts to intimidate or to oppose the servant of God who is doing God's work is opposition to God himself. It's opposition to the work of God himself. Just let that sink in. To God's servant, it's not only opposition to a man, it's opposition to God. Now, this doesn't mean that the man of God is sinless. That doesn't mean that he will never make mistakes or do something that's actually opposed to the will of God. He certainly will. And there are means to address these issues. For example, the Presbytery Shepherding Committee that I mentioned before, this is one way. If there are men who are straying, the Shepherding Committee come along and try to, to bring them back, to help them. The Presbytery itself is, is, is an avenue for addressing Error, errors in pastors. And there are other means of accountability, other Christian organizations, such as schools and ministries. But never is outright rebellion, never is intimidation, attempting to undermine, never is that appropriate toward God's servants. In our Old Testament reading that Nathan read from Numbers chapter 12, if, if you would go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to, to Numbers chapter 12, this is a sobering account of what happens when God's servants are opposed by people who are using sinful and worldly means. See, Moses' own sister and his own brother, Miriam and Aaron, they basically attempt a coup. They attempt to rebel against Moses' leadership. And they have an excuse. Their excuse is that, well, they don't like the fact that Moses has a Cushite wife. My friends, this is not forbidden. Moses did nothing wrong. Moses' wife and her father, they were actually followers of Yahweh. They were supporters of Moses. They became part of the covenant community. But the real reason, the real reason for the rebellion was that they were jealous. They were jealous of Moses. Now, God had used both Aaron and Miriam. They were both in positions of authority. They had influence. Aaron, he was the high priest. Other than Moses, this was the most respected position in the whole nation. But what they say, they spitefully say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Of course the Lord had spoken through them. They too were the Lord's servants. But what they were doing is they were thinking too highly of themselves. They, were, they resented Moses' position as a leader to God's people. And this was chosen by God. Moses didn't really want this position, right? Moses didn't want it at all. He tried to do it. God chose him specifically. And they're attempting to undermine this role. And notice that Moses doesn't even attempt to defend himself. Verse 3 says, Now the man, Moses, was very meek, more than all people were on the face of the earth. And I'm figuring that Moses at this point was just exhausted, that he was at his wit's end. He didn't have the strength to defend himself. He's probably thinking, you guys want to take over? Be my guest. 
Be my guest. I don't care. I'm out of here. In the previous chapter, in Numbers 11, just glance over at this, the people are constantly complaining to Moses, and they're constantly complaining about Moses. They're resentful that they're in the desert. They missed all the comforts they had in Egypt as slaves in Egypt, and they're sick of eating manna. Look at Numbers 11, 4 and following. It says, Now the rabble that were among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic cost nothing, only their freedom. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And moving on to verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servants? And why have I found, not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all those people? Did I give them birth? Moving on to 14. I am not able to carry all those people alone. The burdens are too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. He's saying, if I found favor in your sight, kill me right now. That's what Moses is saying. Moses is done. Moses has had it. God, and God does give Moses relief here. He directs Moses to appoint 70 men as elders, and they assist with the leadership of the people. So not only is Moses now exhausted, not only is he discouraged by the rebellion against him by all the people, now he is facing mutiny by his own sister and brother. The closest people to him are now rebelling against him. Of course he has no fight left. But look at who does fight for him. In Numbers chapter 12, we see that it is the Lord, the Lord himself, who defends Moses. See, Miriam and Aaron, they are God's servants. They're not unbelievers. They themselves are servants of the Lord. But God now calls them to the carpet. He lets them clearly see that Moses is the man that God has chosen to be their leader. If they don't like it, their problem is not with Moses. Their problem is with God himself. And God disciplines them. We see Miriam gets leprosy. Now it is temporary. There's mercy here. It's a temporary discipline. She is restored after a week. But God is showing a very clear principle here. And this principle is just as true for us as it was for Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And the principle is this. Opposition to God's man, opposition to the person God has called and anointed to a specific task in his kingdom, this opposition is seen as opposition to God himself. This is how serious it is. And here's where some of you may may get upset with me. See, this principle applies not just to the church, but also to the other realms of, of authority that God has appointed. It also applies to the family and to the state. See, God has sovereignly ordained leadership in the church, leadership in the family, and leadership in the state. And he has ordained that the husband and the father is to be the head of the family. And rebellion against the husband and the father attempts to undermine or usurp this authority. This is rebellion against God himself. Not just the husband, not just the father, but against God himself. See, God didn't just ordain a a generic husband or a generic father. He's ordained, if you're, if you're a wife, he's ordained your specific husband. If you're a child, he's ordained your specific father that you are to be submissive to. And some will say, that can't be. So you, you don't know my husband. You don't know my father. I know that there are many horrible and abusive fathers. There are many horrible and abusive husbands. And abuse is wicked. It is evil in God's sight. 
And that father and that husband, that, they will answer to God himself for their actions. And just as there are legitimate avenues to address situations of, of a sinful pastor, there are legitimate avenues to address the abuse of a father or, or abusive husband. These include fleeing from dangerous situations, seeking protection from the police if necessary, and seeking church discipline and a biblical divorce. But there are many circumstances, there are many decisions that are not abuse. They are not sinful. They are just different. And the husband or father has made a decision and the wife and children may not like. Now, it's appropriate to attempt to reason with them. It's appropriate to discuss it with them. But rebellion and undermining and failure to show respect, this is not appropriate. This is sin. And not only is it sin against the man, it is sin against God. And if that wasn't controversial enough, God has also ordained our civil leaders. You may not like our president. You may not like our governor. You may not like your mayor or any of your elected officials. You may disagree with them. You can vote against them, certainly. You can use all legal avenues that we have as citizens in a democratic republic. But you are not to rebel. We are not to undermine. We are not to fail to show due respect. We are not to fail to pray for our leaders as we are commanded. We are not to claim that our leaders are illegitimate. No, God has sovereignly put each of them and ordained each of them over us. We think about King David. King David, even though he was the rightful king, he was anointed by Samuel, but he didn't raise his hand against the wicked king Saul. This is a man who attempted to kill David on multiple occasions. And David had no treachery against him. David would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, but rather he trusted the Lord, trusted the Lord to protect him, trusted the Lord to be his avenger. And there are five psalms that, according to the superscription that we have, were written by David while he was being pursued by Saul. These are Psalms 18, 52, 54, 57, and 59. Listen to just some excerpts of this, of how David prayed during this time. He said, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. Psalm 54. In Psalm 57, he says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God sends out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts. They set a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit for me. They have fallen into themselves. Psalm 59 says, Deliver me from my enemies. Oh my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run to make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, you, Lord of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. You see David pleading with the Lord. David is crying out to the Lord and looking to the Lord alone for protection. And he refused to sin. He refused to take matters into his own hands and sin against God by raising his hand against even this evil king, but he was still the Lord's anointed. And if you know your, your biblical history, David had at least two chances to personally kill Saul. Right? And it would have been easy. And it appeared that the Lord himself had delivered Saul into his hand. But David refused. David refused to raise his hand against God's anointed. 
David trusted solely that the Lord, the Lord himself would deliver him. The Lord himself would avenge him. And ultimately, we must trust that God is sovereign. And God will take out sinful and false leaders. God is our protection. And we are accountable to him. We must never try to justify our sin by the sinfulness of others. So this is the first instruction given to the Corinthians on how they are to care for Timothy by putting God's servant at ease, seeing that he is without fear. The second instruction that Paul gives is seen in the first part of verse 11. He says, so let no one despise him. And this is similar to the instruction Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 12, where he says, let no one despise you because of your youth. And the word translated despise here can mean to be thought of as nothing, to be held in contempt, to, to fail to esteem, really to make light of, to ignore. And this is what's done, really, when we fail to glorify God. When we take his name in vain, we basically make light of God. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and it literally means weightiness. It literally means to be made heavy in a figurative sense. Well, the opposite of this, the opposite of giving God glory is actually to make light of God. It is to despise God. And the instruction Paul gives here to the Corinthians is not to make light of God's servant, Timothy. Not to despise him. Not to ignore him. Not to make light of him. And see, God so identifies with his servant, with his representative, that to despise his servant, in fact, is to despise God. I remember about four or five years after becoming a believer, I was serving in a church, and this church was very weak. The teaching from the pulpit was weak, and it was tentative. And I believe that the pastor was a true born-again believer, but he was so afraid of offending anyone. He was so afraid of getting unbelievers in the congregation angry at him that he failed to teach anything of substance. Just vague notions about, about God and, 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 and being a nice person. And I remember in this church, I was leading a Bible study, and I was teaching what the Bible said. And I was one of the youngest adult members in the church. I was probably about 30 at the time. And I remember an old member of my class, he was a professor at Virginia Tech, and he made this dismissing comment about me. He said that, you know, he, he said, I have socks older than you. That's basically what he said to me. And I, I said, well, I hope you changed him at least a couple of times since then. But what he was doing, he was despising me. He was making light of me. And I don't think it was really because of my age, but rather because of my theology, because I actually believed the Bible. So this is the church, I've mentioned this before, where the pastor actually came up to me. I was teaching the youth group, and he came up to me. He goes, don't you teach any of that born-again stuff to the youth because they'll get their parents upset with me. Don't teach any of that born-again stuff. See, Paul's instruction here to the Corinthians and to us is that we are to honor God's servant. We're not to despise him. We're not to make light of him. We're not to mock him. In the first part of verse 11, we are told what not to do. And in the second part, we are told what we are to do. It says, help him. Help him on his way, in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And the command here is to help him. The command is to assist him. The, the command is to make, provide the means that he can actually achieve his purposes. He can achieve his calling. And specifically in, in, in in Timothy's case, it was so that he could actually help and assist Paul. And in following these instructions, the Corinthians are becoming partakers with Timothy and partakers with Paul in his mission. They are becoming partners in the advancement of the gospel. And they are becoming partners in the making of disciples. And my friends, we too, we too work 
with men and women of God, when we choose help them, when we choose support them, when we choose pray for them, when we bring the Salvation Army uh, supplies that they need, when we help serve them, we are partaking in their ministry. We have the privilege of participating in this ministry. And notice that the instruction says, help him on his way in peace. And peace basically means to remove the obstacles. Uh, work to make it easier. Work to make it less burdensome. There will always be obstacles in the work of God's kingdom. But we as the church, we as a congregation, we are to remove as many of these obstacles as we can. And so far we've been looking particularly, primarily at the servants of God as a, as a pastor or as a, a teacher or as a, a person working at the anchorage or a Christian worker. But the truth is, every single person, every single person by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, every single person who is a new creation in Christ, a born-again believer, each one of us, we are God's servants. Whether we are a pastor or a plumber or a missionary or a musician or a teacher or a technician or, or a doctor or a lawyer or, or a homeschooling mother or, or a father or, or any other calling that we have, a veterinarian, if you are a believer, you are God's servant. And everything that we talked about, everything we talked about before, applies to you in the realm where you are serving God. And notice that the reason for the respect and dignity given to God's servant, it has nothing to do with the servant himself. It's not inherent in, to us, but it is based on God. It's because of God. The origin is his dignity. That's the origin of our dignity, is his dignity. He is the origin. And rebellion against God's divinely ordained servant and disdain shown to the servant is rebellion and disdain against God. It's disrespect shown toward God. And why is it? Why is it? It's because God so closely identifies with his servants. Likewise, we as God's servants, we are also to closely identify with him. We are closely identified with our Savior. In our gospel reading from John chapter 15 and follows, Jesus said, if the world hates you, note that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Right? They persecuted our master, they will certainly persecute us. And truthfully, this is the gospel, isn't it? Isn't this the gospel? Christ identifies, Christ, the, the sinless son of God, identifies with his people. He identifies with us so much that he takes his sin upon himself. He never, he himself never becomes sinful, but he takes the guilt of our sin. He suffers the punishment of our sin in his place. And he passively absorbs the punishment that he didn't deserve, but that our sin deserves. as our substitute. We deserve. And he, he suffers that in our place. And then Jesus actively, actively and perfectly fulfills God's law in our place. He does what we were required to do, what we were unable to do. And because of Christ's passive and, and active obedience to God's law in our place, as our substitute, we are then reconciled to God. We are then justified. We are then adopted. We then become children of God. We then become servants of God. And because of Christ's passive and active obedience, we are given the Holy Spirit. We are given his sanctifying grace to enable us to fulfill his law and his commands. Not perfectly, of course, but willingly and joyfully and increasingly throughout this life. And because of this identification with Christ, because of this union with Christ, the world will hate us just as they have hated Christ. 
But my friends, God will love us. And he loves us just as he loved Jesus himself. And he will identify with us. So offenses against us will be seen as offenses against him. Dishonor against us will be dishonor shown toward him. God will consider all those offenses as if they were shown against him himself. So my friends, we need not defend ourselves. We can be like Moses. We can trust that the Lord himself will defend us. The Lord will reward us, not according to our righteousness, but according to Christ's righteousness, which for those of us who are united to Christ is actually our righteousness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's difficult serving you as each one of us was called, each one who you have redeemed. You didn't redeem us just to get a get out of hell free card. You have redeemed us to be your servants, your servants in a spiritual battle that is going on that we see around us every day. And it is tempting. It is, it is tempting for us to want to throw in the towel. We, we, we see how difficult it is. In many, sense, in many cases, life is so much simpler before we knew you, before we were following you. But Father, you've called us to trust in you. And Father, I pray that I know each one of us is, following, is experiencing difficulties, is experiencing opposition in the specific calling that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that you'll make yourself clear to us, that we will see you and we will see that you are sustaining us, that you are enabling us, and you are giving us the power and the will to persevere. All for your glory. Amen.